That is on page 1231 in a Schofield Reference Bible. We use the King James text, and we've used the Schofield Bibles in our church auditorium, so I help with the page numbers there. And actually quoted one of Schofield's notes at the beginning of this lesson in my notes. Schofield calls chapter 3 Paul's ministry triumphant, accredited, spiritual and glorious, not legal. If you look at the sections of the verses that start at chapter 2, verse 14, on down into chapter 3. Well, let's pray together, and then we will look at the lesson today as God gives it to us, and as we've prepared. Father in heaven, thank you for trusting your word to us, giving us your Son, giving us your word through those men that that you inspired down through the years. Actually, you inspired the words and just had them write it down. And then told us to study your word. and Use it not as a trophy on the trophy case, but as a workman uses his tools to minister our gifts in the church, to help one another, and most especially to be the ministers to lost people who need to hear the word of reconciliation that Christ died for our sins and offers his free gift of eternal life to all who believe in him. Help us to become skilled workmen with your word and please you. And we, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Second Corinthians and I wanted to just drop back to kick starting in chapter 2, verse 14. Read just a little bit there. <coughs> Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. It's not just makes manifest the knowledge of him, but the savor, more the good flavor, the good smell of his knowledge by us. We're the, supposed to be the deliveries of it in every place. We are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. It tastes good. It smells good. We delivered the sweet message of Jesus the Savior. We are the sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Either way, verse 16, he says, to the one, we are the savor of death unto death. That doesn't sound sweet. To the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? God uses people like you and people like me to present his sweetness. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity or purity, as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. There is no trickery in our delivery. I hope that's true of you. We're not going to say gotcha to somebody that's wanting to argue rather than to receive the words of the gospel. We go on from the end of chapter 2 on into chapter 3. And Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Epistles are just letters. You, he says, you Corinthian believers, you are our epistle. Written in our hearts, when we were there and ministered among you, we wrote you down in our hearts. I know your names, I know where you live, I know what you do. And I'm so happy to have this about you in my heart's book. Known and read of all men. 
in Corinth, the men around you read my message from God in you. In Corinth, verse 3 says, For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us. I got you started. I got you the gospel message. But you're the letter. You're the declaration. You're the making known of Christ. And you're there because we ministered there. You are ministered by us. Written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart and such trust have we through christ to god we'll go on in a moment but let's look back here at a second in verse one some of the opponents of paul perhaps had arrived in corinth with letters of commendation we we're from jerusalem and we've got the corrected version of that Paul's gospel, oh, you need to listen, this is the revised standard Paul's gospel, gospel of Christ. Maybe it was like in the regions of Galatia, they came in from the Judaizers, the Pharisaic party in Jerusalem, I don't know that, but he's been facing opponents before, he had met kinds of opponents like that before. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, that's page 1271, we'll look at it, there were people in Thessalonica that were getting letters and some of the letters said they were from Paul but they weren't don't be troubled don't be shaken in mind not by spirit somebody says I got a revelation Jesus came last week (laughs) don't be troubled by that don't be troubled by word somebody told me Paul said don't be troubled by letter as from us. Say, hey, look, we got another third Thessalonians is here. You know, a letter from Paul and does doesn't say the same thing. He says he went to heaven. Jesus has come. He says, don't be shaken in mind or troubled. Letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He said, don't let anybody deceive you. That's not coming yet. And we know that passage talks about when the Lord comes back, we'll be gone. We'll be out of here. Back in in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we don't need that kind of letter. We do not need. Need we, as some others, letters, epistles, letters of commendation? You, you yourselves are our epistle. The people who came to Christ, the believers in Corinth, because Paul ministered there for a year and a half, you are the record the gospel story that all men that you come in contact with can read, known and read of all men. For the Corinthians, he needs not to again commend ourselves. He said that in verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do I have to win you over again from the first time? My note says, his fruitful ministry among them, the very existence of that great church is all the commendation he needs and they need of him. Verse 3, he says, you are manifestly declared. It's open, it's plain to see. You're like, got billboards around you. Want to know what Paul's message is? See the Corinthian believers declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us. It was not the epistle of Paul. It was the epistle of Christ ministered by us. 
and the Spirit of the living God. I, I do like to pause every time I come across a phrase like that. The difference between the God that Paul preached, that Jesus is, who is the God of the Jews of the Old Testament, different from all the so-called gods in the world, was he's the living God. Isaiah takes a chapter or two back, I'm not going there now, but to make fun of the false gods. He says somebody will go into the woods, cut down a tree, and he'll break it up, and he'll, he'll build a fire with it, and he'll, he'll make a spit, and he'll cook some meat over the fire, and he'll take the rest of the tree that he cut down, and he'll carve it and make it look like a person, and then he'll bow down and worship it. <laughs> he makes fun of them for doing that. I mean, that's just silly. He, and he says, these gods that you've got, these false gods, they have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, and they can't see. They've got mouths, and they can't speak. They might even have hands, and they can't do a thing. They've got feet, and they can't move. And everybody that worships them is like them. <laughs> Don't be like that. Anyway, when, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, the Spirit of the living God, he's not just making reference to God, the Holy Spirit, he is, but he's reminding them. This is not Aphrodite. This is not Venus up there in the temple with all the prostitutes. This is the living God. This is real. This is not just pleasure to the flesh. This is the God that created all things. And you know it's real. You believed in Jesus. You've received the gift of eternal life. You know it. Now, he says, you're the minister of Christ, ministered by us. And I mention in the notes, Peter used a similar expression when Peter talked about the Old Testament prophets. It's 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 12, there it is, he was saying about these prophets, back verse 10, page 1312 if you're flipping, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently that prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. They were searching what or what manner of time. They couldn't figure out the time. The Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it, when the Spirit of Christ testified beforehand through those Old Testament prophets, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The prophets knew both, but they didn't know which came first and which came second and how close together they were. Dr. Cameron, a wonderful Bible teacher of the past, would draw a picture on the, he used an overhead transparency machine, but he'd draw a picture and show a range of mountains and a prophet over at the sides looking off in the distance at the range of the mountains, and the nearer mountain would be the sufferings of Christ, and the further one would be the glory that should follow. But there's a valley in between, and the prophet can't see into the valley because the mountains are in between. And it just, that's a good picture of what this is like. And verse 12, Peter explains, unto whom, unto those prophets, it was revealed this, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now preached unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophets of the Old Testament didn't get it, didn't figure it all out, didn't understand it. John knew better than Daniel did about the times of the end. But they did know that it was from God and that they were ministering to people that were to come down the road. Now we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 3, excuse me, and we see 
at the end of verse 3, these are written, these epistles that the Corinthian people are, written with, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. The Spirit made the church. You know that, right? Started on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, the people gathered together that were waiting for something that Jesus had promised would happen, were overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit of God. And the church was born as the Holy Spirit baptized the believers into the body of Christ. The body of Christ was created then. And from this point on, every believer in Christ is placed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And we're the different parts of his body. Who's the head? Christ himself is the head. I, I might be a toenail. I don't know. But every one of us has a part. We are members of the body of Christ. And Paul uses that illustration and that truth all the time. He said, what if the whole body were an eye? And you can imagine, here comes the door opens and an eyeball comes bouncing down the... If the whole body were an eye, he says, where's the hearing? If the body was all an ear, where's the smelling? You, you just need all of us. We need every part of our body for the body to function and to do what the head wants it to do. Over in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 11 through 14, let me see if I've got that bookmark here. No, I skipped that bookmark. How about that? 1 Corinthians 12 Verse 11 through 14, it's page 1223. He says this, all these, all these different gifts, the Spirit works, that one and the selfsame Spirit dividing to every man, to every believer, severally as he will. The Spirit decides who can do what. You don't get to say, I really, really want to be that in the church. When you're not that, if you're that, you can be that. But if you're not that, you just need to, be what you are. As the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be its slaves, bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. The body is not one member but many. And then it goes on in the, some silliness in the illustration. The foot would say, I'm not the hand, I'm not in the body. Does that mean the foot's not part of the body? What if your foot rebelled and didn't want to get out of the... Get, you stop walking on me all day long. I got all this weight to carry. Why don't you walk on your hands for a while? Well, I can't do that. I'm not built that way. Anyway, it's a great thought to think about. And it's about us in the church, about the place we all have, if you're new or if you've been here for 50 years, we have a place to make this body of Christ function, not just here in Tampa, but the body of Christ around the world. Now, Paul next makes reference back to, I've got to go back to 2 Corinthians 3, the old law. He says here, you're written in fleshy tables of the heart, not in tables of stone. Now, these were some Jews, a lot of Gentiles. They started in the synagogue, so they knew about the law. And they hear the epistle written in tables of stone, and they're thinking what? They're thinking the Ten Commandments. They're 
thinking at least that much of what Moses wrote was in tables of stone. That's probably what they were supposed to think of. And so having that reference, he's going to come back to that in just a minute here. He will continue this contact, contrast down in verses 6 to the end of the chapter. But before we get there, we're in verse 4. Such trust we have through Christ to Godward. And that's looking back to chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, verses 14 and 15. Whoops, I hit the wrong button there. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. We're the sweet savor. We're the sweet savor. And we go back to where we just were and in chapter 3. That's what we trust. We have through Christ to Godward. We're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves he said in verse 2, we're the epistle known and read of all men. In verse 2. <coughs> in verse 5, now, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of, us, of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. Paul was an intellectual. Paul was school trained. He was Pharisaic by upbringing. He did what was supposed to do so much so that he could say before he was saved he was blameless before God. And yet when you get to the place where he's been serving the Lord for a while as a believer, he says, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency, what we do have, our sufficiency is of God. Paul says, I can do some things, but I can't do them because I'm Paul. I can do them because I belong to Jesus and he has made me sufficient. Verse 6 says, who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he's about to go back into this description, this contrast, if you will, between the law and the new revelation, the new covenant, the new testament that they have, that they themselves are the epistles of. What was done in Corinth was God's doing, perhaps using Paul, but it wasn't Paul that did it. It was God, our sufficiency as of God. Paul does refer to the sufficiency that he does have. We have also this sufficiency. God did a great work in Corinth. God does great works in Tampa and Zephyr Hills and round the way. In those who received Paul in his letters, but he used Paul to do it. He uses Christian believers. He uses us. Our sufficiency is of God. I hope when you go out of the back door of the church here, if you do, that you do not neglect the available tracts that are in the track rack beside each side of the door there. If your pocket is empty of them, you need some. If you have them in your pocket and you see somebody at the gas station or the grocery store or your next-door neighbor out in the yard, if you have some with you, you have one less excuse for not opening your mouth and talking to them. It's easy to use a tract. It's easy to use a tract. I think in these days my most common opening line is, I teach in a Bible college right over there by the airport. And we like to ask people this question, am I going to heaven? Do you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? I just, no preamble, just go right into it. 
I don't know what they say next. Sometimes they say, oh, yes, I know I'm going to heaven. I live a good life. <laughs> and then they go right on into that. If heaven was good, I don't doubt you're good. You're probably better than I am. I know you're better than Warren is, but, but I don't say that unless it's Warren's right. If Warren's right there with me, I might say that. But heaven is not good. Heaven is absolutely perfect, and you have to be completely and perfectly righteous to go to heaven, and we're not. Anyway, we go back here. He has made us, verse 6, he has made us able ministers of the New Testament. I don't think that's me, that's you. Paul includes the Corinthians, the ones he had so criticized in his previous letter, and himself and his companions. The living God has made us able ministers. We're the table waiters. We're the staff that brings the food from the kitchen to where it can be used. We're ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The Spirit killeth, the, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. I've got to look at these words in verse 5 and in verse 6, just for a moment. Sufficient and sufficiency, and the word able in verse 6 they're all kind of the same word. In verse 5, sufficient is hikanos. It's an adjective. In verse 5, sufficiency, it's the, the noun form of it, hikanates. And in verse 6, able is the verb form. Made able, hikanao. All from the same word, adjective, noun, and verb. We don't always see these things in, in English. It's nice to catch. Oh, he's saying that again. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves. The sufficiency that we do have is of God, and God has made us, if you will, sufficient or able ministers of the New Testament. We got enough. We got enough to do. The idea of enable is enablement or qualification. Having him, we are sufficient as ministers. When I was a teenager, I was involved in the youth ranch a lot. And some people said, well, what, is, what are you going to do with your life? How would that be enough to, how will you earn a living? I don't know, but I had the idea that God wanted me to do with my life whatever he wanted me to do with my life. And somebody said, if he's got all those cattle on the thousand hills, he can get me a hamburger. So I wasn't concerned about it. Years later, one of my children, when he was a teen, was not happy about one thing in particular, that we didn't have all the money everybody else had, because Daddy was in the ministry. And just in the last several years, he's communicated with me again, and he said, I begin to understand that you had something other than money that uh, not everybody has, and it just, God blesses. You give yourself to him, he'll do what he needs to with you. I've never been, never been short. I've been, I've been kept, I've gone, had to go slower once in a while, but I've never been short on the things of life that I needed. Not of the letter, the letter kills. The ministration of death. Think of these things that are referring to the law, which God gave Moses. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. The letter kills. The ministration of death written and engraven on stones. And it was glorious, but 
that glory, the end of verse 7, was going to be done away. It's going to end. It's passing away. He's contrasting the new, in verse 6, ministers of the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the old, all it did was kill the ministration of death, what the law was given, so that you'd know you were dead. You'd know you needed the glory of the law. I mean, the children of Israel, it was glorious. They couldn't even steadfastly behold the face of Moses because when he got back down from the mountain talking to God, he was aglow, very literally bright. And they said, would you please put something around your face because we can't stand to look at you. You've been with God. It says ministers of the New Testament. It's an idea that we don't have time to develop completely today, but I wanted to look one place where the Lord Jesus makes reference to this. At the Last Supper, we read this and we don't always pick up on it. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. I think he's saying, all of you drink of it, not drink the whole cup down, boy. I drink you all of it. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Remission is forgiveness. Two different English words translating the same Greek word. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died for my sins. He satisfied God for my sins. He said, this cup, this represents my blood of the New Testament. It's shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He made reference to the New Testament. When it's called new, whether here or where we just were in Corinthians, ministers of the New Testament, the implication is that it's permanent. It will never be replaced. This is the one. But the old is temporary. The old is going away. The glory was to be done away. At the end of verse 6, it says, the letter kills. The letter kills. Glance with me. I'm going to pull it up here on the screen. Romans 4.15 is page 1196, if you want. Paul writes to the Romans, the law worketh wrath. Where no law is, there's no transgression. When the law came in, everybody was suddenly guilty. And chapter 7 of Romans, he says this in verse 9, I was alive without the law once, maybe referring back to when he was younger than he understood the law. And then he got to his becoming a man ceremony, the bar mitzvah. And he says, the commandment came. And sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be to death. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. The law kills. Now we made reference there to the uh, when Moses came down from the mountain carrying what God had given him. <clears throat> this is Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 down to 35. And here's where the story is. It came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony. This is page 117, if you want to look at the page numbers. When Moses came down, if if you do like I did at the beginning of the period here, I looked for this, 
And I was in Numbers instead of Exodus, and you can't find these verses in Numbers. It doesn't work. But in Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony of Moses in Moses' hand, he had the two tables of stone written by the finger of God. When he came down from the mountain, Moses wist not, he did not know, he did not understand that the skin of his face shone when he talked with him. Moses is aglow, radioactive. When Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave him in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. He said, all right. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off. It wasn't to protect him from God. It was to cover the glow of God from the other people until he came out. When he came out and spoke to the children of Israel that which he was commanded, the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God again. That's the story. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we pick up here at verse 8. In verse 7, Israel, the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. And that glory is going to go. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? More glorious. Glorious in a greater degree. Rather. (laughs) That kind of thing. It's a, a comparative term there. More the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory, verse 9 says. And I think that makes me want to look over there at the uh, chapter 5 verses that we've been closing with these days. Uh, Well, if I can remember where I put them. Maybe I didn't. I don't think I did. Okay, we'll just flip over there real quick because I made you hear these several times, but that's Chronicles, sorry. Second Corinthians chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, he made him to be sin for us. The ministration of righteousness, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's the ministration of righteousness that we have We are ambassadors for Christ. He's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I remind you of the verses that we quote every morning in church, Romans 1, 16 and verse 17 as well. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So there's the ministration of righteousness. It's through the gospel. And we have the responsibility of delivering it. That's not where I want to be. 
going back to where I want to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. That which was made glorious, that is Moses and the law, had no glory in this respect, in this comparison, because of the glory that excels. Just got so much more. If that which was, is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. That which remains, the new ministry, what we've got is permanent, and it's glorious so much so more so than that which Moses received. And now Paul wraps it up here in verse 12 and 13. He says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Hope is one of the great words of the New Testament, and it's different than what we often expect because of the way we use the word hope in our lives today. We have such hope. Here's the dictionary. I'm trying to get the dictionary. There it is. Click. There it is. El Peace. Thayer says it's expectation of good hope, joyful and confident expectation. Thayer had some other things in there as well, but if you just look at the Strong's Dictionary, it comes from el po, which is a verb, to anticipate, usually with pleasure. Expectation or confidence. What's different between that and the word hope that we use today is when we talk about hope today, sometimes, are you going to go down there? Well, I hope so. I don't know for sure. It's a, it's a, it's a maybe so, maybe not kind of word. But in the New Testament, when you see hope, it is this word el peace. And it does not have any maybe not to it. It's expectation. It's really connected with assurance. We have this that we look forward to. What is it we look forward to? We're going to be with Jesus. We'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Having that expectation, that assurance, we use great plainness of speech. We use boldness. We're blunt about it. We need... Why do you talk like you know you're going to heaven, man? Because, man, you know you go to heaven or you're not going, probably. You need to know that you're going to heaven. We, we, we don't have much faith in the folks that say, well, I believed in Jesus, but I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or not. When you hear somebody say that, you say, man, you need to understand. He didn't promise to help you out a little bit if you were good. He said, believe in me. And I take responsibility. You may know that you have eternal life. We use great bluntness of speech. Somebody that says, I hope I'm going to heaven. You say, you, if you don't know so, you may not go so. <laughs> I hope that, that you do it more winningly than I do. That was not very winsome, but it's the truth. Now, it's possible for a person to be saved and forget. There's people who don't know they're going to heaven who are going to heaven. But you don't. You don't find out unless you ask them those questions. You have to ask them those questions. You don't, I sure hope you don't have a group of family and friends and you know you're going to heaven and you're just, man, I hate to bring that up. They might tell me the wrong answer and then I don't know what I'll do. You need, to, you need some plainness of speech, some frankness, some bluntness. Tell them about your assurance. 
Now, in verse 13 through 16, it refers to that that we looked at over in Exodus. Moses put a veil on his face that the children of Israel couldn't steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Their minds back in the Exodus were blinded and still are. Until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. When a believer reads through the promises of God in the Old Testament, it makes sense. When a lost person looks, often Satan blinds them because they don't believe. Verse 15, unto this day when Moses has read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And I don't use the word turn very often in sharing the gospel, but that's the truth expressed here. When a lost person, especially a lost Jewish person, opens up their willingness to think about Jesus, the veil can be taken away. They can see Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. They can see Psalm 22 is about Jesus dying on the cross. <coughs> when it shall be, when it, I think it is their heart, turns to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I've got Romans 10, 1 through 4 written down here next in my notes, and I like this passage, especially thinking about Jewish people. Paul said at the beginning of Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They, Jewish people, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Isn't that good? They need the righteousness of God. Pharisaic self-righteousness doesn't get you to the standard of perfection. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And we finish up here toward the end of chapter 3. In just a moment, I'll be back there. In verse 17, he says, The Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Usually in Paul's mouth, when Paul says the Lord, he's talking about, who would you think? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here we've got him saying the Lord is that spirit. He's saying it's the Holy Spirit. And he's identifying Jesus with the Holy Spirit just because of the way he uses the word. And he's identifying him with the God of the Old Testament. There's a glimpse here about the Trinity, because in Exodus, the Lord there was certainly Jehovah, or a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. There is here an identity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is quite in line, I put in the notes, with our understood, our understanding, poor though it may be, of the truth of the Trinity. And then the last verse in the chapter, uh, 17 and 18. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We don't have a veil up there. We're just looking right into a reflection. It's as though God, we're standing over our shoulder and there's a good mirror in front of us and we can see him when we look into the word of God. We with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, it doesn't just give us something to look at. It says we are changed 
into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This word changed isn't used very many times in the New Testament, but it's used in one place that you know already, and that's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It is the word metamorpho, and like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly, it means metamorphosis. It is that. And in Romans 12, 2 says we can be changed by the renewing of our minds that we can prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God if we give our lives to the Lord and become workmen for him. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, the word is translated transfigured, and that's where Jesus appeared in his glory. He's got Peter and James and John with him up on the mountain, and boom, instead of it being Jesus, the fellow they've been walking around with, it's Jesus in his glory like he's in heaven. And there's Moses and Elijah talking to him about the death that he's soon to accomplish in Jerusalem. And Peter and James and John are looking. And, of course, Peter being Peter says, let's build three tents. (laughs) And boom, God takes Moses and Elijah away and finishes up, says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. I had one more thought that I wanted to look at with you today before the time is completely gone. This idea of being changed. 1 John 3, 2, John the Beloved writes this, Now, beloved, now are we the sons of God. When you believe you're a son of God, you're a child of God, you're in his family. And John says, It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3, every man that has this hope, this expectation, this assurance, this looking forward to heaven in himself, purifies himself, even as he is pure. Even as he is pure. I'd like to finish with chapter 5 each time, just to remind you, verse 20, now verse 19, here's the gospel. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. He did the work not imputing their trespasses unto them. After the death on the cross, the sins were placed on Jesus, and they're not on the believing thief or the unbelieving thief or anybody in the world. Sin's not the issue anymore. God has taken out of the way what stood between. He reconciled, potentially reconciled the world unto himself, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 21 says, He made him, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us. And the result of that is we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you believe in him, as John 3.16 says, you won't perish, but you have everlasting life. And folks, this is the invitation. We beseech you as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. A person who has never, ever believed in Jesus' death for him, his death on the cross, can be reconciled to God because the reconciliation has already been worked. God took out of the way the sin. He'll give you his own perfect righteousness if you believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've come to the end of this chapter, this rushed lesson, I pray that people will hear that which mattered and remember it and learn to use the tools of these powerful verses as they share the gospel with lost people around them. And Lord, if there is anyone listening who has not yet 
believed for themselves in the Savior who took their sin, right now we pray them. We pray them in your stead, Father. We pray them be reconciled to God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.